Thank you, McKinney's. That was, that was great. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, will be this morning. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. It's on, if you don't have your Bible with you, the pew in front of you has a, a black Bible there. You can follow along. Page 984 is where we'll be there. In the 1300s, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, in many ways, started what, a movement that later began to be picked up by people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, known as the Protestant Reformation. Wycliffe, who lived in between the years of 1330 and 1384, believed that every single person was accountable to God, and therefore, every single person needed the Bible translated in his or her own language. Now, this was in direct opposition to the current prevailing thought and opinion of the day that only the priests needed God's Word in their language. But the Protestant Reformation was not only about getting the Bible into the language of the common people. Bible translation was part of a much larger problem in the Catholic Church. Because the Bible wasn't understood by the masses, the leadership of the Catholic Church held all the authority. They could require all sorts of things of the people, and the common man would have no grounds for objection. And they did require all sorts of things of the people. The church held all the power and therefore they could twist the scriptures to say whatever it is they want to. They could express their own desires creating tradition after tradition after tradition to the illiterate masses and they would have to follow those traditions. These traditions were nothing more than legalistic hoops that the people would have to jump through in order to feel as though they could please God, in order to feel as though they had a right standing before God. They had additional rules that they had to follow in order to feel like they were even loved or cared for by God, in order to be accepted by God, in order to be considered justified before God. They had to do a list of decrees that the priests laid out. So even a hundred years before the birth of Martin Luther, John Wycliffe picked up on these atrocities of legalism in the Roman Catholic Church. And he said this, The gospel alone is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you can hear in his words, even back then, the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation that came along a couple hundred years later. Legalism undermines the very nature of the gospel. Amen. Before we dive into our text this morning, let's define what I mean and what I don't mean by legalism. Legalism is any action we use to justify ourselves before God and exalt ourselves above others. 
any action that we use to justify ourselves before God or exalt ourselves above others. Now, we've already seen in Colossians 1 where Paul says that in Christ, he has now reconciled us in his body by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. That's what we call justification. That Christ has already done this. So you can already see the problem of legalism is running head on into what Paul has already said is true of the Christian. That we are justified in Christ. Legalism says, I can do it. The justification that happens in Christ says, no you can't. Christ already did it. Legalism says, I have the power to improve myself. I can pick myself up by my bootstraps. And the gospel says, God is the only one that can justify. And he's already done it through Christ. Christ. Now, we are talking about legalism. And we're not talking about obedience. Obedience would be seeking to adhere to God's word out of a heartfelt sincerity without creating any kind of rules or standards that are above and beyond his scripture that somebody else has to live by. This is heartfelt sincerity. That's obedience. Obedience is a good thing. Obedience and legalism are not the same thing, as we'll reiterate throughout this message. Obedience recognizes the fact that through Christ alone am I justified. It's only in Christ that I'm justified before God. And now I want to live my life in such a way that I align myself with his will for my life and I continue to walk in obedience to him, reading and obeying his word. So in our text this morning, Paul's going to shake us from these forms of legalistic tendencies that we tend to pick up from time to time because truly by nature we all have a bent toward legalism. But the reason that I love this passage is because not only does he do that, but he identifies why legalism is actually an assault on the sufficiency of Christ. Let's look at our text this morning in Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in, details, in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, as we've gone through Colossians, um, what a lot of people call the Colossian 
heresy, which essentially was the assumption that there is a group of people in and around the church at Colossae that are feeding them with false information and trying to instill and teach false doctrine in the church at Colossae. And I've also mentioned that it's possible that Paul's either warning about a specific heresy that's, that's rising up in their church, or perhaps he's just warning them about a, uh, heresies that are in the area that they need to watch out for. But in the text we read, Paul gets very specific about certain kinds of teachings that are really dangerous for the Christian to listen to. And he gives right here in this passage to Colossians a few warnings about this particular brand of legalism. And what we're going to look at in this passage is the context that Paul's speaking in and about. But what I'd really like to do is hone in on why he thinks legalism in particular is very dangerous. He identifies at least three very clear effects that legalism has on our understanding of Christ's sufficiency. The first, legalism is idolatry at the expense of the worship of Christ. Legalism is idolatry at the expense of the worship of Christ. Look closer at what he says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This passage presents a really, our, our, really our biggest clue that the heresy is not just some general heresy that's floating around the area, but in particular a Jewish kind of false teaching. That it has a Jewish background to it that's affecting and spreading into the church at Colossae. That Jewish false teachers in the area of Colossae are coming in spreading this legalistic teaching that says you have to abstain from certain foods and certain drinks and that you have to participate in the Jewish religious calendar in order to belong to Christ. Now we know that the Jewish law had very clear teaching on food restrictions. What you could eat, what you couldn't eat, that kind of, that kind of thing. But it doesn't really have many regulations on drink unless you take a Nazarite vow. And if you take a Nazarite vow, of course, alcohol is off limits. So it's probable that what's going on here is that they're advocating for the abstinence of the Jewish food laws and the consumption of alcohol. So probably what we're seeing here is that they're restricting them on certain foods that they can take in in order to follow Christ. But then Paul concludes this list and he says uh, uh, festivals and new moons and Sabbath. So these are references to the holy days in the Jewish calendar. There were annual observances. I'm sure we're all familiar with the festivals that the Jews would observe on an annual basis. But there were also um, monthly and weekly observances that they would adhere to as well. So the monthly observances of the new moon that Paul mentions here be at the beginning of every month. They're to call attention to that and commemorate that with offerings and various calls and things like that. But the biggest question I think most people would have as they come to this text would be in dealing with the idea of the Sabbath. And, and truth be told, if I can say one thing about that, is the idea of the Sabbath, the notion of the Sabbath, how we deal as Christians in the New Testament era with the Sabbath could be a sermon series and will be one day a sermon series all on its own. 
All right, so let's not get distracted with a lot of those things. Let's stay on track here to what Paul is actually pointing to. All right, look at the main point Paul is making. The issue at hand is people mandating that in order to follow Christ, you have to adhere strictly to the, the hallmarks of Judaism in the way that they were followed in the Old Testament under the Old Testament law. Now, the reason he says this is dangerous, which is what I want to zero in on, is because it shifts the Christian focus away from Christ. It's focusing on the shadow, he says, as opposed to the substance. Now, all of these things, the laws, the festivals, all of these things, are originally, their intent is to point to Christ. Christ is, as an example, our Passover lamb. Right? We, we acknowledge that. We know that. Christ is the Passover lamb. The Passover, in other words, and the lamb is pointing to the, the eventual day where the Messiah would come and deliver us from our sins once and for all. So Paul is saying that that's a shadow of what is to come now in Christ. We don't need to go back and celebrate the Passover anymore. Christ is here. He's come. We can celebrate Christ in our coming together. We don't have to go back to the festivals. It's only in Him that we find true justification before God. It's not about the festival. It's about what the festival eventually pointed to. It's Christ. So even as it pertains to the Sabbath, even though we come together and we celebrate on a weekly basis, it's not in the same way that they do in the Old Testament with the expectation of the Messiah to come. He has already come. We are here together celebrating the fact that we are found in Him. So by having judgment passed on you, or maybe even passing judgment on someone else according to any legal code is basically saying that there's something else other than Christ that needs to be added in order to justify you before God. You need something else other than Jesus. Jesus is great, he's okay, but you know what? You need this or that thing too in order to have justification. It's the center of legalism and it's idolatry because it shifts your focus from Christ to simply the things that were originally intended to point to Christ to begin with. You begin to worship what's made rather than the maker. We've created some of these things in our own culture. Now, not only the issues of, of alcohol that Paul brings up here in the text, obviously that's become a, a really hot-button issue, particularly in the South. But there's a long list of other things that, that w we wouldn't have time to even discuss in detail. But I'll, I'll mention one of them. I'm a millennial, all right? I'm on the older end of the millennial scale. So for all of you millennials, I'm one of you. I'm saying this out of love, all right? I'm, I'm with you in spirit, okay? You can feed your kid organic blueberries and free-range chicken all you want. It will not save them, all right? <laughs> I don't know what a chicken stress has to do with my eggs, but for some reason, cage-free is the way to be. Um, but there is a, there is a Christian uh, culture growing up in the church 
that honestly feels this way about organic food, about the, way, the diets that we give to our kids. Now, I'm not talking about people that feel better eating organic food or that choose to eat organic food if they have the choice, or maybe even have dietary restraint. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about people that are convinced that there is a reward given to them in heaven because of the cleanliness of the food that they eat. Clean eating is next to godliness. It used to be cleanliness is next to godliness. Now it's clean eating is next to godliness. And the truth is that we'll spend forever fretting over the food choices that we give to our children and our children's diet, but we'll, we'll, ha- we'll spend comparatively very little time instilling in them proper biblical disciplines to train them in righteousness. But listen, we can't go the other way either. There are biblical disciplines that we are commanded to practice, and that's obedience, not legalism. Assembling together as a body on a regular basis is something we're commanded to do in the book of Hebrews. Prayer, studying God's word, uh, evangelism, these are all things that we're commanded to do. But we should never think of these things as justifying us before God. As securing our right standing before God. Only Jesus does that. We have to look at these things as the fruit-filled result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That He gradually produces in us a more disciplined life growing in godliness. They don't secure your standing before God, but they may give a clue to the Christ that you believe in. But there are also things that we're forbidden to practice. Drunkenness. Sex outside of marriage. Homosexuality. Lust. Pride. Gossip. I mean, the list goes on for both categories of the things that we are commanded to do and the things that we're commanded never to do. And to practice these kinds of things is abusing the Scripture's clear teaching on sin. So following Christ is also not a free-for-all to just do whatever we want and say whatever we want and be whatever kind of person that we want. That's not what Paul's getting at here either. He's simply saying that there is no practice that needs to be added to Christ's sacrifice to justify you before God. Your right standing is provided by Christ and Christ alone. Now there certainly are do's and don'ts, but they're in the Word. They are listed here in Christ's word that he has given to us, and they are sufficient to train us in righteousness. But legalism is an all-out assault on the sufficiency of Christ because it shifts our focus from worship of Christ to the legal demands themselves. You need to do these things. It's like we're saying that these things do a better job of justifying us before God than Christ does. Second, legalism inflates the self at the expense of the body of Christ. Legalism inflates the self at the expense of the body of Christ. Look closer at what he says in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Asceticism is, because it's not a word that we commonly use in our culture, at least uh, today, um, Asceticism is depriving yourself of all forms of indulgence. 
Basically getting rid of all things. So here again, Paul's, Paul's highlighting these tendencies in legalism to pick up these various forms of religiosity that aren't specifically commanded of us in Scripture. In the last point, mostly what he was getting at in the last point was, you know, hey, you need to do these things. You need to participate in these festivals. You need to participate in these dietary and food laws, at least in, 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 in part. But here it seems that the focus is on now what you're abstaining from. So what you, the do's and the don'ts, if you, if you will. What are you abstaining from? What are you putting away? And notice what he says here about it. The issue is not entirely that someone just chooses to do this for himself. But what is the key? That he is insisting upon it. That he is insisting other people participate in this form of legalism. So legalism and anarchy are part of the same product, but they're on different ends of the spectrum. In an anarchist society, every man makes a rule uh, in and of himself, and he follows that, that rule. It's my rule, I'm making this for myself, I can live how I want to live. Legalism is when all the anarchists come together, all right, <laughs> essentially. Now the legalist is making the laws for everyone else, making the rules everyone else must follow. You have to follow this in order to be godly. But why does Paul say this is dangerous? Because it puffs him up. It makes him proud. He's egocentric. He has a way of insisting upon his own way in order to attain righteousness. This is how righteousness is attained. It's my own way. You have to adhere to the things that I say in order to be righteous. The problem is that Christ is providing the growth in the body. Christ is the head of the body. He's the one knitting everything together. He's the one providing the growth. He's the one enabling obedience through His Holy Spirit by His Word. He's the one that's working in the hearts of men. The legalist is not holding fast to Christ who provides the growth in the body. He's holding fast to Himself. Well, if he's holding fast to himself and he's not holding fast to the head, then the body's growth as a whole is stunted. In other words, legalism dwarfs the body of Christ. Think about this within the context of marriage just for a second. Let's say in a, in a, a married couple, there's certainly times where we'll get together as, as a married couple and we'll kind of level set expectations. Uh, no? Am I the only one that does this? Uh, <laughs> this means yes, join me. All right, I feel alone up here. All right, okay, good. Uh, I'm not the only one uh, that has conversations, all right, about various things. But uh, one person may say to the other in, in the couple, hey, um, you know, I, I think this particular thing that you said was rude and it made me feel this or that way. And the other person says, Okay, I won't do that anymore. And then they also add, while we're at it, um, now that you say that to me, I, I have one as well. Let me just go ahead. Since we're having that conversation, I know I'm not the only one that does that, right? Uh, <laughs> while we're at it, I don't, I don't think it's good when you do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And which I've, I've learned the, res the proper response is yes, dear, right? Yes, dear. That's, that's the way to go. I haven't actually learned that. I still want to argue. Uh, 
But now imagine if one of the people in the couple, let's just say the husband for argument's sake, comes in and just really just tries to lay down the law. And he just, he just tells his wife, look, okay, I only want green M&Ms in the candy bowl, all right? And my coffee every morning needs to be exactly 200 degrees, all right? Just starts laying out all these various laws. He comes in with these arbitrary commands, and he just starts laying down everything, accepting nothing less than, yes, sir, do it. And the conversation is only ever one-sided. He's just laying down everything. How long do you think that that marriage will flourish? Do you think it will ever flourish? Do you think they'll ever be growing together in godliness? I don't think it ever will. Its growth is stunted. The same principle applies when it comes to the church body as a whole. When you have people insisting upon their own way, this is the way it has to be. They're, they're not pointing to sinful errors. They're not pointing to things that the Bible lays out, mind you. They're simply pointing to preferences. You end up with a dwarfed body. A body of stunted growth. Because their own ego, the body will never actually grow the way it's supposed to be. Even if all the demands are met, the body still won't grow the way it's supposed to be. This isn't adherence to Christ's law. It's simply opinions that have grown into dogma, that have been lorded over the rest of the body. The reality that these people need to wake up to is that no one else can be expected to live up to your conscience. We have to be careful as a body that we don't place on our brothers and sisters a weight that Scripture does not put on them. We have to be very careful about that. Amen. It's not the weight of our own expectations that we need to put on them. Amen. That's true of marriage. That's true of friendships. But it's true also in the church. Amen. Third, legalism is false holiness at the expense of stopping the flesh. Legalism is false holiness at the expense of stopping the flesh. Look at the text in verse 20 and following. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's already mentioned a couple of times that we are united with Christ. And we said a couple of weeks ago before the hurricane uh, that came along, I, I noticed everybody's okay. We made it okay through the, the hurricane last week. Uh, I saw a leaf blow this morning, and I thought, oh, we're going to power through. Uh, I think another hurricane's coming. But a, f- a couple of weeks ago, the last time we met, um, he told us that we were buried with Christ in baptism, that we were raised to walk with him, that we are part of his resurrection. A couple of weeks ago, we said that Christ is our head. So when, he, when God looks at you, he sees 
Christ. Christ has represented you on the cross. If you are a Christian, you are part of Him. So when God looks at you, He sees Christ. He is our head. He is our representative. So the way Paul puts it here is that you and I have physically died to the regulations of the world. And we've been resurrected. This is a present reality. Right now, at this very moment, if you are a uh, believer in Christ, you are professing faith in Christ, you are following Christ, this is a present reality for you. You have died to the world and you've been resurrected with Him. Now imagine the lunacy of going to a funeral and walking up to the casket at the front of the funeral and looking at the corpse and saying, you know, you should really lay off the salts. Look at what it's doing. Imagine the lunacy of that. Who would do that? No one would do that. It's a dead body in front of you. But the way Paul is depicting the Christian here is that if you are a follower of Christ, you are dead to the world like that corpse in the casket. There are no more regulations that you need to submit yourself to. You might, you might, th you might be thinking to yourself, well then, if I died, then nothing else matters. But there's a a flip side of it too. Not only have you died to the world of sin, but you have been resurrected into Christ's new kingdom. Remember when he said you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's told us that we have now a citizenship in a totally new place. We are, are heirs with Christ in his kingdom. We are citizens currently right now living as citizens of the kingdom of God. So we adhere to an entirely different set of laws. What would happen? What, what, what does your life look like in eternity when you are there with Christ? What does it look like? That's what it's supposed to look like now. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to grow us in that right now. He says all of these regulations that look like you're being holy, they're not. True holiness is killing the indulgence of the flesh. And these regulations have no ability to do that. The legalist says, well, I got rid of Facebook. I got off Facebook. Yeah, but you still struggle with anger. And now you just tell your liberal friends to their face how much you disagree with them. Or your conservative friends, how much you disagree with them, instead of ranting on their post on Facebook. Now you just do it face to face. It's still anger. Well, I got rid of my TV. Well, but you still lust. Now you just do it at the grocery store instead of on in front of the TV. The reason is because the indulgence of the flesh is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And every legalistic obstacle that you could possibly put in your way can easily be overcome by your heart. Easily. The natural inclination for the Christian, every time he or she stumbles, is to put up obstacles in front of himself that will keep him from falling again. And when he tears those down, he builds new ones that are bigger and stronger. And he'll continue to build new ones as he continues to tear them down. And the severity will continue on and on and on it goes until he limits himself to the barest essentials in life. 
food and water. This is analogous to to an army building a fort. And then in the night, under the cover of darkness, an enemy comes in and kills the high-ranking officials in the camp. So the next morning, the soldiers fortify the walls, build them bigger and stronger until they're impenetrable, only to find more dead officers the next morning. So the the walls get bigger, they get stronger, they get higher, they're fortified even stronger until they're really impenetrable and only to find more dead soldiers the next morning. How long until these soldiers realize the enemy is in their midst? The traitor is inside the walls. So the Christian must realize that his own heart is prone to wonder and it cannot be trusted. The enemy is on the inside. In order to stop the indulgence of the flesh, we have to lose our taste for sin and grow our appetite for the grace of Christ. Andrea and I have a a favorite restaurant back home. Um, It's, uh, it's, I say back home, you know what I mean, the hometown that I come from originally. Uh, we have a favorite restaurant, and it's the perfect restaurant, I'm telling you. Right now, you would love it, all right? doesn't matter if you walk in. I mean, the, the atmosphere is just is absolutely, they just nailed it. You could walk in in a three-piece suit and sit down at a table, and a guy in Tommy Bahama shorts and flip-flops is going to come and sit down at the table next to you, and both of you are going to feel like you are in the right place. The music is just right. It's never too loud, and it's always really good music, all right? So when there's a lull in conversation, you're always like tapping your foot to sitting on the dock of the bay or something like that, right? It's great. It's never too loud. It's, it's just loud enough so that you know that like you're in, a, in a, an atmosphere, like there's some ambiance in there, but it's never so loud that you can't talk to the person across the table from you. It's absolutely just perfect. But that's not even to mention the food. The food is exquisite. I'm saying this right as we're coming up on lunchtime. I'm sorry. But uh, the, food, the food is exquisite. I've never had anything there that's bad. It's the best restaurant in terms of food that you could ever go to. Steak is always cooked to absolute perfection. It's never overdone, never underdone, exactly how you ordered it. Eating at that restaurant is the worst mistake I ever made. (laughs) We've eaten there a thousand times. But how can I ever go to any other restaurant? Now when I go to another restaurant, I, I look at the food and I'm like, the standard is unfair. It will never compare to Ben 303. Never. You can't beat Ben 303. You can't even really try to compete with it. In fact, when I go to another restaurant and I look at the menu, if there's something on that menu that reminds me of a dish that was made at Ben 303, I will intentionally not order it because I know that I'm just going to compare it. It's never going to be quite as good. The indulgence of the flesh to sin and stopping it is stopped the same way. That our appetite for Christ must grow as our lust for cheap steak continues to fade away. And as our appetite for Christ grows, our lust for cheap steak will continue to fade away. This happens when we focus on the good news of the gospel. Here I stand as a sinner condemned to die, unworthy of salvation. And yet, God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, sends his own son to die in my place. And on the cross, he bears God's full wrath on my behalf. That now by placing my faith in him, 
I can have eternal life and I'm spared from the wrath to come, as Paul says. Who wouldn't want that? How amazing is that? Christians should constantly be walking around saying, wow, I cannot believe that I've been given this by His grace. But legalism is simply a checkbox. It's false holiness. It's a box that you check. It says, yes, I'm addicted to that, and yes, I'm still struggling mightily there, but look at all the boxes that I've got checked. Look at all the fake holiness that I'm piling up on my side, and hopefully one day the good that I'm doing will outweigh all the bad. It's much easier to check a box trying to make the good outweigh the bad than it, than it actually is to lose our taste for the indulgence of the flesh. That requires something else entirely. It requires turning to the body itself for help. It requires turning to the head, Christ himself, for help. It requires me to trust more in the sufficiency of Christ to cover my sin, but also to continue to provide me the things that I need for growth and true holiness. It does me no good if I fall in sin and continue to indulge the flesh, but then also pile up these legalistic checkboxes and only cast doubt on Christ's sufficiency. I need these checkboxes to weigh on my behalf in eternal judgment. I've just traded one addiction for now two. Same addiction I have, and now I'm a legalist. The more I contemplate this reality, that Christ has died for me, that he has provided justification before God for me on my behalf. The more I contemplate that, the more I dwell on that, the more I consider all the angles involved in that, the more I read about it, the more I grow in understanding this concept, the more enamored I've come, I become with the things of God and the less satisfied I am by the cheap stake of sin. That's not to say that hurdles and obstacles aren't helpful. Of course they are. We all have hurdles and obstacles that we put up in our pathways to sin, but all they are is a means of, of putting away this and focusing on Christ for a season. That we can make sin really difficult for us to attain to and, and focus on Christ until our appetite for Christ grows. The problem is not with the hurdles themselves. The problem is with our own perception. The hurdles are not holiness. Holiness is killing the sinful deeds of the flesh. The point of all this is to be on guard. To always be on the lookout for this as it creeps up in our own lives. If Christ has justified you before God the Father, then His atonement is enough for you. It worked. That's the only checkbox that mattered was that one. And it worked. He did it on your behalf. You need to add nothing else to improve your standing before the Lord. He not only loves you, but He likes you if you are in Christ. He's not constantly mad at you. He took that out on Christ. But let me be totally clear. Not everyone in the world is justified. Not everyone in the world is going to spend eternal life with Christ. In other words, on Judgment Day, there will be people sent to hell. 
not everyone is actually saved, but some of those unsaved people manage to make it to church every time the door is open. You think about that for a second. They manage to make it to church every time the door is open. And there's usually a couple of things that, one of two things that usually describe their way of thinking about this whole process. First, they may have a, a blatant disregard for killing the sinful deeds of the flesh. Have absolutely no desire whatsoever to put away the rights and wrongs, or put away the, the wrongs that they're currently, uh, sins they're currently partaking in. No desire to kill the deeds of the flesh. They continue to live and enjoy even the marriage bed, living with their boyfriend or girlfriend outside of marriage, as if the Bible has not said anything that, to, the, to the effect that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God, like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Maybe they continue pursuing their freedom of drinking alcohol into drunkenness, as if that same verse doesn't also condemn the drunkard to say that he will not inherit the kingdom of God either. They have a filthy mouth as if God's word has nothing to say to the person that blesses God and curses men as James does. All the while boasting about the so-called freedoms that they have in Christ. And when they're called out on those sins, when they're called to the carpet for those sins, when they say, I'm, I'm concerned about this pattern of sin that I'm seeing in your life, all they respond with is the church is just filled with legalists. We can't slip so far in our perception of God's grace that we say, I don't think I actually have to obey anything that he says. That's certainly not true. Amen. If you have no desire to kill the sinful tendencies in the flesh, that may not be God that you're worshiping. Second, maybe they're convinced that their own ability is what is what determines their, the, is the determining factor in their salvation. If you ask them if they're saved, they may say things like, well, well I, I go to church and I try to do what's right. They may even be able to point to things that they've done in their own life, like, well, I've gotten rid of our TV, I got rid of my smartphone, I got off social media. They may even be able to hold that over someone else and say, man, I can't believe you're still on social media. Man, maybe the Lord will one day reveal to you a higher truth. And they think that this is the fruit that the Spirit is producing in their life. But usually when you check in on their lives and you ask about lust, it's still there and it goes unwatched. Masquerading in this pile of checklists. If you ask about gossip, they're still struggling there. Even without social media, yep. Still struggling with gossip and it goes unwatched. Both of these demonstrate a complete disregard for the sufficiency of Christ in their justification. Because they're either convinced that Christ's death means absolutely nothing for the way that I should live now. Or that it's my own sacrifice that's securing my standing before God. It's what I'm doing that puts me in right standing with God. I can do it myself. We have to watch out as Christians. We have to always strive for a totally different way of understanding that Christ's work on the cross has secured my justification before God. But now I want to pattern my life after His. I want to live my life by His standards. I want to abstain from sin and the, by the power of the work, Holy Spirit working within me. I want to avoid any hint of unrighteousness. 
I want my brothers and sisters to point out those areas in my life that they see some inconsistencies so that I can repent of them and turn back to Christ. I want the Lord to shine a bright light on the dark recesses of the corners of my heart so that the lust and pride and deceit come out into the open so that I can know them and that I can confess them. As David prays, search me and know my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into life everlasting. We have to continue to grow in our distaste of sin and our desire for the things of God, all the while trusting that Christ alone is sufficient for my righteous standing before God. And He has provided help in the Holy Spirit for me to walk in obedience. And I must remember that Christ's work is either sufficient for me or it is nothing to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how could we ever begin to express our gratitude for the death that you paid, for the the sins that you paid for with the blood of your Son? How could we ever begin to even express our gratitude I pray, Lord, that in the years to come, a holy weight be put on us of the wonder and the majesty of this sacrifice. That we grow more and more enamored with what you have done for us. That our taste for the things that you want us to have grows And our taste for the things of the world fades. Only you can do this. I pray that we would begin as a body to devour your word that you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that you would move in each one of our hearts, that we would move toward confession of those things that we've piled up so that we appear holy that you would shine a light on the darker parts of our heart, that we could bring those things out into the open and confess them to you and rely on your goodness and your grace to justify us. For we know that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone, that we are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.